Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to Deutsche Grammophon's international podcast series. I'm Sarah Willis, and I just love podcasting with the Yellow Label's star-studded cast of musicians. My guest today has a voice which speaks to the heart, and he can also tell a great story, as you can hear on his latest album, where he performs Schubert's song cycle Die Schöne Müllerin with his leader partner Daniel Heide. What makes a good leader partnership? Why is his diction so good while singing? Is hiking in the mountains good for the voice? I hope to get all these answers for you and more on today's podcast with my guest, the wonderful André Schuen. Welcome, André. So good to see you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for the invitation. We are doing it the modern way, podcast via Zoom, but at least we can see each other when we're talking. Yes. <laughs> and the last time, actually, I saw you, you were at the front of the stage and I was way at the back of the stage. Do you remember? In Salome? No, Carmen. Sa Carmen both. was the last. Carmen and Salome. It was a long time ago. I mean, you were probably about five at the time. Uh, <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you had like roles that said a few words and then died or something. That was uh... exactly. I was singing quite uh, small roles in Salzburg Festspiele and Berlin Philharmonic with the Berlin Philharmonics. And yeah, but it was a very uh, special experience. It was. And I remember then everyone sort of thinking, oh, what a voice and look what you're doing now. And I must say congratulations on your fantastic album. And it's not just saying that because it's my job to say that. I really did love it. You've got such a beautiful voice. And what's Thank amazing you. is I understood every single word. And, you know, singers are not famous for for being able to to, to make people understand them. Yeah, well, I think that's very important, From especially in, in leader singing. That's uh, maybe really a, one of the basic things. And uh, I'm very happy you understood everything. So <laughs> no it's need a, for the booklet. <laughs> it's a great story. I love the story. And uh, actually, thank you for doing this podcast in English. I know English is like your fourth language or something. It is. I learned it quite late. So please pardon if I am not finding the right words. It's fantastic. You, your first language is a very strange language that I've actually never heard before. You learned at home. You speak this mixture. Is it? Is it? Is it Swiss? Is it Italian? Is it? Is it German? What? What exactly? It's a proper own language. It's a very old Romance language. It's like a little bit like Roman in Switzerland, but we call it uh, Ladin, and we're thirty thousand people speaking it in the Dolomites in northern Italy. And only 30,000 people speak it. It's like an exclusive club. Exactly. And we don't have a standard language. So it exists, but nobody speaks it because we're not enough people to learn a standard language, I would say. Well, I, I loved it. There's some great videos of you speaking to your parents on YouTube. And literally, I didn't understand a word. <laughs> <laughs> and then English is the fourth language, German and Italian. But that must really help also with the diction for a singer. I mean, I, I'm fascinated by this because I played 10 years at the opera here in Berlin. And often we didn't understand one word what people were singing on stage. It doesn't matter what language they were singing in. Uh, that's uh, well, that's not good. But uh, yeah, it happens sometimes. Some some singers, or maybe even in some repertoire, it's, uh, we sacrifice a lot of the text because of the musical phrase and the beauty of the voice. But ideally, a good mixture of both is best, I would say. 
Yes. And also the song cycle. It's such a special storytelling element. I think that it's it's so important to be able to understand everything. You you are literally you are the actor on the stage keeping everybody involved. And die schöne Müllerin is is such a such a special tragic story. Well, most song cycles are tragic, aren't they? Uh, I would say so. Yes. And if you compare, for example, the Shona Müllerin with Winterreise, which is maybe even more famous, Winterreise, I think the particular thing of the of the Shona Müllerin is that it starts on a very positive level. You go on stage as this uh, young Miller boy, full of energy, full of life, and he falls in love to this young woman, the daughter of the of the Miller, and. It's until probably the middle of the cycle, until song number 10, 11, it stays on a very high positive level. And then there is this big fall, well, to the suicide at the end, which makes it very tragic for the audience. And for me as a singer too, it's uh, uh, sometimes in the Müllerin, it's very difficult to stay focused and able to sing, you know, because if you let yourself too much into these emotions, you're not able to sing anymore. So one has to find a good uh, uh, mix for, yeah. You just asked a question I wanted to ask because by the time you get to the end and you're singing this lullaby to the to the brook, which I sort of, it, it's sort of so poignant because a lullaby would usually be sung to a sleeping child, but it's being sung to somebody who's just killed himself. My heart was so heavy listening to you sing this. I wondered how on earth did you manage to even get enough air in to sing if you're, if you're being that character? It must be so difficult. It is. I mean, of course, in a recording, it's a different thing because we can take as much time as we want or, I mean, not really as we want, but we have a lot of time. <laughs> but during a proper lead album, it can be a very tough challenge to transmit these emotions, but still stay as neutral as uh, you need to be uh, for singing. Yeah, to get the notes. <laughs> yes, that's yeah. very difficult. That's true. And that's especially difficult in the Müllerin for me. How, how do you create that atmosphere in a studio? Because there's wonderful little videos online called Tiny Lectures where you and Daniel, who, Daniel's a great talker. He, can, he, he likes to, sometimes you just sit there and listen to him. <laughs> Um, where, where you explain, uh, you both explain, you know, how you create this atmosphere. And, and I wanted to ask you for our podcast listeners, when you perform a song cycle, you feed off the audience, no, you feed off their, their reactions and you can, you can read a room because you're the storyteller. How do you do that in, in a recording studio when there's just two of you? Who do you sing to? That's a very good question. And that's a very difficult thing in, in a recording session, I think. In my opinion, it's very, very important to sing this kind of works in front of an audience before recording it. It would not make any sense to me to record it and then go on stage with it. I mean, we will go on stage with it, of course. When we're allowed to go back on stage again with audience. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, it was very important to sing it in front of an audience. And I think we sang it probably 10, 15 times to get the feeling how the audience reacts and responds to a different different way of singing in uh, one song or in one phrase, how it works. If you give more 
tenderness into the words or I think that's very important. This maybe is a silly question because the Schöne Müllerin is, is, is a story and the, the collection of poems and it has the, the, the story that goes through it. But in the recording, did you do them in any different order or did you, did you do them according to how your voice was that day or did you stick to the order of the, of the story? It's a little bit a mixture. Basically, we remained in the normal order, like the composition. Uh, but of course, sometimes if you feel, let's say it's in the evening and you would have to record a quite low song, which, well, in the Miller in there are not very low songs, but... <laughs> well, it's for a tenor, actually, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, but we transpose it, of course. And still, it's on, uh, let's say, for me, high tessitura, because it wouldn't make sense to transpose it to a a very deep, low bass tessitura. You're a young guy in love. Yeah. And so, but it can happen that, uh, for example, in the evening, you would record a um, quite low song and you feel the voice is uh, at that exact moment on a higher tessitura. So um, you just decide to record uh, the next song. So that's what we basically do normally. And then sometimes we do a run through of three, four songs or even more just to have this energy. Yeah. Sing, I've, I've met a lot of singers and for me, the, the low voice singers seem to be very uncomplicated with their voices compared to the sopranos and the tenors. They're always looking after, you know, how do they feel? Are they wearing their scarves? Can they sing this today? Oh, no, they can't. But the, the baritones and the basses seem to be so uncomplicated. You think so? That was a good answer to the question. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, uh, well, I hope you're right. It's a good thing to be uncomplicated. Well, I mean, as a baritone or as a bass, we sing most of the time in a region of the voice we also speak. So maybe the effort is not that big as for a tenor, for example, because a tenor is a very artificial uh, kind of singing in a very high top notes that can be probably very demanding and uh, you need to be very focused and keep your voice very well shaped so what we do also of course but maybe just another uh, added level to that that's a great answer. You know, I've always wondered this. I thought maybe it had to do with their personalities, but you're right. It's the level where you speak at. It's like the altos seem to be a little bit less complicated with looking after their voice than the sopranos. This is very general. I mean, I, I'm a horn player. I have no idea, but that makes that makes a lot of sense. You have different um, horns also, no? Yes, we do. We have high horns and low horns. Is it a big difference to play the high horn? It's it's more it's more exposed often. So yes, if you're the principal horn and you have to play Bruckner or Brahms, you know you are taking care a lot more than if you're playing low horn. Of course, everybody wants to play well. It's like you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. like things but you probably, all want to I do mean, well. That's a, yeah. probably very similar. Ah, good. I'm learning yeah. things on the Deutsche Grammophon International Podcast Series. <laughs> 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 but how is it with with a singer? I mean, you you grew up, you played the cello in your family family yes, band, so you were the bass of the group. Now, for any of you listeners that haven't experienced Andre's band, his family ensemble, they are fantastic. You 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 grew up doing folks music all together, and your mother and your sisters and your dad, incredible musicians. It must have been so inspiring to to grow up around these musicians. I had a very beautiful childhood. Yeah, that's true. 
and we always um, had the possibility to sing and to to play together. And of course, I mean, when we recorded something, we recorded folk music, but we always played classical music too in the, in trio with two violins and cello, and we sang gospels and um, different uh, kinds of music. So, yeah, it was it was very beautiful, and I think this uh, helped me a lot to find different colors and and ways of singing, which is very important in lead also. And I think in opera too, just to, you know, to being able to shape phrases in different ways and not just sing everything like um, the telephone book. Singing like the telephone book, just singing it as it comes. No, but I think also exactly. a, a sense of ensemble singing as well, because you all you all breathe together and you're you're in in tune with each other. But I was wondering what would have happened if you hadn't have been a baritone, if you'd been a tenor, or your your family ensemble would have been completely different. Because you're the bass, you're the bass of the group. Actually, that would have been even better because my father is also bass ah. or baritone bass. Yeah. So we were always singing the low male voice uh, together. He's he's a bit lower, so he sang this, the sub bass sometimes, and I just sang the normal bass. But the function ah, is the you. same. I thought that was you singing down the the very low bass. Okay. On the recordings, I am probably because they're my father. I'm not sure he sings on the recording. Maybe he does. I, I have to listen. <laughs> what, what, what happens to the voice when you get a bit older? Does it go lower or higher or, or weaker? Or uh, Well, usually it gets, I would say, lower and darker. And that's one of the main reasons I really wanted to record the Schoener Müller in now. I mean, of course, I generally I, I always wanted to record it. But it's very important to record it now, I think, because now I still can bring the light, bright facets into into the voice, and even this maybe sometimes uh, tenoral quality of the voice, which is very important. Because if I record it in ten years, uh, probably my voice will be much darker. Votan. Well, I don't know. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? But um, it, yeah, probably it, it, it will get more dramatic and that would not fit that well this uh, cycle, I think. In a song cycle, you are not alone. A song cycle would be nothing without an amazing accompanist. That's right, isn't it? It's really yeah. not just the singer. People think, okay, the soloist is, but it's an equal partnership. And your yes. partnership with Daniel Haider is very special. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, well, we met, uh, I think it's now more than 10 years ago. And he heard me singing in Salzburg and then he, he wrote to me and asked me if I would have been interested in just uh, trying to sing and play some songs together. And of course, I I was, and it was just the, the end of my studies. So we met and basically on this, in these two days we met in Salzburg, we sang the whole Winterreise, the whole Müllerin, no, Müllerin, um, by then I didn't sing, Winterreise, Dichterliebe, Schwangesang, monologue, a lot of stuff. And I think we both realized we have 
a very natural connection. And that that's still how we work. We don't talk a lot about how we want to sing or to play the songs. We just make music together. We do a lot of run-throughs. And I think, well, if he plays something differently as I would have thought it before, and it's better, we take that version and so we shape this work together. I find as a horn player playing with, with, with pianists, you can play with an amazing musician, an amazing technical musician. But if that person doesn't breathe with me, you know, have the exactly. same the same way of breathing, then then it, it it's for some reason doesn't work. And that means nothing. That's nothing against their level of musicianship. It's just some people just feel it. And I had the feeling you and Daniel really breathe together. Well, that's a very special thing about uh, Daniel, because he's I think he's very sensitive as a pianist. He feels very quick if I need air to breathe or if I need another kind of background to sing some phrases. And one more thing, he's a crazy voice aficionado, even in very different uh, music styles. So he's very interested in how does a voice sound if I play this chord like this or... The next, more forte, how does it fit in? How does it uh, uh, work together? Yeah. That's incredible. And does he does he help you with with the technical things, or is, is I, I I watched an interview with your with your teacher, and she said you were a very good student because you went to all your classes, even though you were so good, you could have just not gone. She said you went to all your classes, and you got your technique sorted. <laughs> <laughs> but I know that a lot of accompanists often help singers out as well. They know more about the voice often than the singers. It's it's an incredible phenomenon. And they just know how voices work so well. That's true. But Daniel does know a lot about voices. That's true. But I'm also a freak about voices. So Tell me, how are you a freak? I love freaks. Tell me. <laughs> well, usually, for example, during my studies, I, I had my lessons. And then if I would have an afternoon off, I probably would sit like six or seven hours in front of... Uh, my computer, listening to different versions of one aria uh, sung by, um, let's say, for the Italian repertoire, first Capuccilli, then Bastianini, then Manu Guerra, then even the older one, then modern singers, and just comparing and trying to find out the good things, the not so good things, or how does it sound if I do that? So, yeah, that kind of freak. <laughs> a total singer nerd. I love it. I'm a horn nerd, so I, I appreciate when someone else is a musical nerd as well. But that, that is what I think that level of preparation and that, that passion for what you do is what the students need these days to really oh, yes. come out on the oh, top. Yes. Because if someone just thinks, oh, I'll just practice my three hours a day and then I'll go and watch, you know, movies. Well, I love to hear that about you, that, that, that you, that you really delved into all that passion, because then you can create only by finding out about all the other styles. Can you create your own style, I think? Absolutely. I, I don't think it works um, on another way. I mean, if you don't have this passion, how should it work? And another thing I, I realized, I mean, you can have very good teachers and that's very important, of course, but I think it's very important for a student to take responsibility 
you know, because you want to be a singer or, or a, a hornist or a musician, whatever. You want to achieve something and you're responsible at least for a part of this path. So a, a teacher can only help you to, to get where you want to. I know that a lot of singers keep their teachers, though, until very, you know, all their careers, because singing the voice is sort of a box that needs fixing occasionally. Yeah. Would you go and see your teacher again? Or do you feel quite confident in your setup? Actually, I always want to. But, you know, you have to find the time for that. And sometimes when I come home, <laughs> I just want to do other stuff, to cook, to uh, do some sports, to have fun, to meet friends. So That's important too. Yes, it is. It is. And usually when we sing opera, we have a lot of people telling us some things. Um, for example, listen, this uh, high phrase doesn't sound that well. Maybe you can find something. So we are not alone. Yeah. I've always admired opera singers, how they memorize everything and then have to run around on stage and do love scenes and battle scenes and still watch the conductor at the same time. <laughs> yeah, or not. <laughs> or, or not. It depends. Yeah, it's the same with us. We watch the conductor or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so the other question that I, I mentioned in the introduction, um, is mountain air good for the voice? Because I saw a, a lovely portrait of you and you were hiking and the area around where you live is so unbelievably beautiful. It's like, it's it like is, where, pe yeah. where people pay to go on holiday, but that's where you live. And um, that's true. Is, is that well, something... I'm not living there, unfortunately, anymore, but uh, yeah, I grew up there. And the mountain air was obviously good for the voice because all your family have amazing voices. I don't know. I mean, it's possible. <laughs> but uh, one could say the same about uh, sea air, probably, no? So, True. Yeah. True. It's just a very beautiful nature. And yeah. I promised I would ask. So um, it's 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 beautiful, and nature inspires anyway. And exactly, and it, it's like it's like everything you know. As a, as a, as an artist, if you haven't experienced the things that you're singing about, it's harder to bring that emotion in. That's there. true. That's for example, I I always get the, the the question: if it's not difficult to to sing these uh, romantic songs, because it seems so sometimes maybe dull or, uh, you know, the stream and the birds and and the flowers. Uh, dull? Even. Who calls that dull? It's wonderful. Well, I, and for me, it feels very natural because I, I, I grew up very close to a stream. I, I, I grew up in a Miller's house. I mean, it's not anymore, but it used to be. Did you fall in love with a Miller's girl who ran off with a hunter? Uh-uh, No. <laughs> 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 I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. It's a beautiful recording. Um, and this is a this may sound like a silly question, but I I was, you know, flicking through the 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 playlist and I, I listened to them all in one order and then I realized, okay, I really like that one. I'll go back and listen to that. Do you have any personal favorites? Well, the last song, yeah. I think the last song is really the most touching. Or I'd say the last three songs are my favorites. Yeah. The, the Deutsche Grammophon are releasing a single of yours on their Musical Moments series, the Litanai. How does the Litanai go? Which one was that? Is that number, number 14, it's, 15? Um, Ruhn in Frieden, alles Frieden. 
Yeah. It's written for the day of the death. So it's not in the Müller and that's where I was looking for it. I was thinking it must be in there somewhere. Uh, no, it's, it's not. not. <laughs> we recorded that as a bonus track. I'm very happy to find to realize that because I felt like, gosh, where is it? Where is it? And and I thought, where's a litanai in the Schöne Müller? And I'd never heard of it. But uh, uh, but this fits in uh, well uh, with the dead of the young Miller's boy. Yeah, the last number is so incredible, and this—I I feel like the, the, it has. It, there are three characters, you know. There's the there's the Miller's apprentice, there's the daughter, there's the hunter with yes. his designer stubble, as it says in in the booklet, and then there's the brook, which is almost a person. Yes, it's like a father figure. Yeah, all the hype around your album. What are your next plans? What what would you like to record next? Are you a song cycle type of guy? Would you like to record bigger stuff with orchestras? How do you see your your voice path? Uh, well, I I see two different paths. I see uh, the lead path and I see the opera path. And in terms of recordings, um, I will record, or I even already recorded Winterreise and Schwangesang. And they will be released, um, I don't know exactly when, but in future. So that's this path. And there is a lot of repertoire in the song world. Uh, a lot of Schumann I would like to record. And Strauss, Mahler. I love Mahler. Mahler is probably, with Schubert, my favorite uh, lead composer. He's a good horn composer too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And the opera repertoire, there is also a lot that probably should or would like to record a Mozart album, which is uh, basically the composer I sing most at the moment. And then I'll have to see where my voice uh, wants to go, in which repertoire, more Italian, uh, higher baritone stuff, or if the voice returns a little bit more in the lower region to a bass baritone, which could be possible. Yeah, we'll see. How, how does that happen and when? Well, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I studied as a bass baritone, basically, and I always felt probably the voice will go to a more baritone-ish region of the voice. And it did. But the last two years, I feel the middle range of the voice and the low range developed uh, also quite well again to got better than a few years ago so maybe that will be more the direction the voice will lead me but i don't know you know and there is uh, also the possibility to change a little bit the repertoire from time to time it's not so you don't need to to be too severe about it, I think. The voice is a fascinating instrument. And and the, the, the best and the worst thing about it is that you can't see it. The best thing, because you never have to have the problems on the airplanes like I have with my French horn. <laughs> uh, you can just get on the plane. But the worst thing is you can't see it. If something goes wrong with my instrument, I can usually fix it. Yes. But you can only feel it. You know, and it, it's always fascinated me. And I, I just I, I love your album. I really do. And I'm looking forward to hearing everything that comes and and good luck with everything. Thank you. And uh, I know promoting a new album is a lot of work all of a sudden, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, now I have the time. It's the good thing about Corona. No? <clears throat> That's not a lot of work in terms of concerts. 
unfortunately. But uh, so I can't take the time to to uh, make some podcasts and interviews, which is also very nice. It's fun. But next time, I hope you'll be sitting here opposite me in the studio. That's a lot more fun. Then we can have a coffee after. Yes, that would be very nice. (laughs) It's been great to have you on the podcast. And usually at the end of a podcast, we've had something called a horn challenge, which which means a guest has had to play something on my horn. Now in Corona, of course, we can't do that, especially today, because you're so far away. But do you have any favorite horn moments or any moments you are worried about when you know a big horn horn number is coming up? Or is an instrument maybe just next time I see you you'll just have to try and play it i would love to yeah but i have uh, we spoke about salome and of course as a baritone uh, salome with johanan is uh, one of the big dreams i would say and there's this very beautiful uh, appearance of uh, johanan the first time on stage this is very beautiful and that's where the, all the six horns play together. It's a beautiful, yeah. it's, it's a beautiful yeah. bit. And actually Strauss wrote such difficult things for the horn, but that that is that is not so difficult. It sounds great. There's other things in the lecture where they the horns have to go ba 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 ya ya, and we have the potential to ruin ruin an opera by by splitting <laughs> those notes. But that's a beautiful <clears throat> moment, Johannan. So maybe you'll sing that one day if your voice goes the other direction. Well, actually, Johannan is not so low. It's quite, I mean. There are bass baritones singing it, yes, but it's quite high for a bass baritone. I think that's a role I will probably sing, yes. Not now, but uh, who knows, in seven, eight, ten years. I hope I get to sit in the pit again for it. (laughs) That would be nice, yeah. (laughs) Andre, bravo for everything. It's been great to have you on the Deutsche Grand Film International podcast. And I look forward to seeing you in person in Berlin when uh, when you come and do your next concerts. But uh, thank you very, very much. Thank you. And thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in. And I look forward to seeing you on the next Deutsche Grammophon International podcast. Until then, bye-bye. 